I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 4. First John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I'll pray. Lord, I thank you again for the, your word and just these clear, simple statements that you've made. And God, our trust is in you to work these things in us and through us. That all that you're saying here, God, would be true in our very being because of your Spirit's being wedded to ours and making these things fleshed out in us. And that the truth, God, of who you are would be manifest through our lives to this world. Thank you for your love and for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> um. There's this passage obviously is is on God's love. Christmas is about the love of God. God so loved the world that he sent his son into this world. And um, when God brings together multiple things at the same time is often as a statement to my simple mind that God's trying to get my attention. And don't always know why, but I can't deny the obvious, because there's no happen chance with God. So it being Christmas coming up, and this passage of Scripture, but also um, I've had a friend, a close friend, who for a number of, of months, probably a better part of a year now, almost every time he writes me or texts me, 
it's on the theme of love and praying that I would um, just grow in my understanding of, of God's love. And I, I appreciate that. And I know that it's a need. But I also can't um, overlook how much love has been expressed to me and my family um, over these last few weeks. And I deeply appreciate it. Um, with the loss of two grandbabies, as most of you know, back on October um, 24th, Nathan and Davina's baby was stillborn. And then on November, I think it was 27th, um, Brooklyn's baby um, passed away the night before. And she, the baby wasn't moving. She didn't know that he had passed away. She went into the hospital and there was no heartbeat. And a um, number of hours later, after they'd induced birth, uh, induced labor, she gave birth early in the morning on the 27th. And um, Hendrix, baby Hendrix had passed away um, the day before. So we're just grieving, but very, very thankful, as I've said, for all the expressions of love um, from this body as well as so many others. And we thank you for that. And we can't help but understand that that we are very loved by God and by God's people. And um, we're learning, I think all of us would say, just what the significance of that love is and how it's expressed and, and how to receive it as well as to give it. So just jumping into this passage, um, this is the, the place that we go to for the... Um, Truth that God is himself love. And twice in this passage, as I've read, verse 8, God is love, and verse 16, God is love. It's one of the most simple, profound statements that Scripture makes. God is love. But we cannot overlook that that is not how this epistle began. This began it began back in chapter 1 with another very simple three-word statement and that is God is light. And we can't have one without the other. God is light, and God is love. And I don't believe that one attribute of God um, trumps all the other attributes of God. I believe that, that God is, a, as the theologians like to say, a simple being, meaning that none of his attributes are in conflict with each other, and all of them are essential to who he is. So if you were to pull one attribute away from God, he would no longer be God. They all are essential to his nature. And so it, for, it's not that God's love is greater than light, or light is greater than love. They are core essentials to the nature of God. But it is interesting that John chose to mention light first. Light is the idea of, of holiness, of purity. And we know from, from the Gospel of John that one of the um, benefits of light is that it brings life. And so God, Jesus, the light of the world, came into this world so that the world might know life. But you can have light, holiness, and not have relationship. And in fact, if Scripture only said God is light, that is not a comforting word. Because there is darkness in us. 
And if all I knew about God is that God is holy, I would not get any closer to God because I know that I'm not holy. But not only is God light, but God is love. And if all I knew about God is that God is love, I would not become any closer to, to reflecting God. Because if I didn't know, if all I knew about God is God is love, then I would think that I can stay in my unholiness and be loved by God. And that God would be happy and content if all I did was just accept his love and was never changed. So I need to know both. I need to know that he is a holy God. God is light. And that repels me. But I also need to know that God is love. And that draws me to God. But the God who is love is a holy God. And he expects that I not remain unholy. His love draws me to the one who is holy, that I might be like him. And so Jesus says that you must be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. So these are very simple but hugely profound statements. Beloved, let us love one another. Obviously, it's possible to love one another. Or he wouldn't say, let us love one another. Love is from God. It is not from you or me. Love is supernatural. This kind of love. We need to understand that. Even though he says, let us love one another, I can't just flip a switch in my soul and love the way that God loves. Only God can love the way that God loves. And it is something that I have to come to him for. Love is from God. If I am not living from God, I will not love as God loves. And so there's a beckoning here, a drawing to come to the one who is love and from whom love comes that we might love one another. I hope we understand this. We all not only need to be loved, but we need to love. And it is not going to happen by sending loving notes or loving Christmas cards out. It's not enough to affirm love and to speak of love, but to actually love, it takes God. I think once you've put a few decades on, you know that. That no matter how good your intentions are, you cannot in yourself love. It's one of the reasons that God created marriage. Because you get married because you're in love. And then very shortly you recognize you cannot love. You can't love this person. You can't even love your own children. It takes God to love. Love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God. In other words, you can't love unless you're saved. You have to have a relationship with God. Everyone who loves is born of God, that's salvation, and knows God, that is relationship, intimacy with God. You have to be saved and you have to be abiding in Christ for God to love through you. 
If we're not saved, there is no hope. And if we are saved and we're not biting, there is no hope of loving as God loves because love is from God and we must be in relationship with him for that love to be expressed. The one who does not love does not know God. He doesn't say the one who does not love is not saved. The previous verse, the one who loves is born of God, that's salvation, and knows God, that is the ongoing personal intimate relationship with God. In verse 8, if that love of God is not being expressed through us, John is not assuming we aren't saved. John is assuming we aren't abiding. Because when we're living in an abiding relationship with Jesus, what is true of Jesus will be manifest through us. So there's a sense which we don't choose love. We choose Jesus. We surrender to Jesus. We abide in Christ. And as we abide in him and live from him, his love will be expressed through us. And if there isn't any love being expressed or his kind of love being expressed through us, it is because either I am not saved or I am saved and I am not abiding. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, we need, this is a great statement here, and it ought to draw to mind what Paul says in Romans 5, that even while we were yet enemies, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that he gave his son for us. Now, John has also said that God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. John chapter 2, verse 2. So Paul says that God sent his son to his enemies to be an ongoing demonstration, it's in the present tense, of his love for this world. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. And so yet John is saying here that the love of God was manifested not to us, but in us who have believed. The love of God is manifested to the entire world, but it is only manifest in those who have placed their faith in Christ, those who have received Christ. The love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son, John 3, 16, into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son with an expectation, with a desire, with a hope that people would live. So love has hope. Love has desire. Love has expectation. And God sent his son in love that we might live. And when you receive his son who was sent to us in love, the love of God is manifest in you. And you live. Now, some things here I want to touch on without um, digging too deep into this and, and missing the whole of what he's saying in this passage. 
God is love. So I've already noted, so important here to understand that the starting point for everything God chooses to do is not his will. It is his essence, his character. Why did God send his son into this world? Why did God choose to send his son? It was not arbitrary. He was moved by his love. For God so loved. There is nothing God can do, nothing God can choose that is not consistent from who he is, with who he is. It flows from his essence. So this is a huge theological issue, actually. It's the difference between what theologians call essentialism, everything God does comes from the essence of who he is, and voluntarism, which is the idea that if God wills something, it will come to pass, and if God wills it, it is right. Voluntarism is the core tenet of at least one major school of theology. It answers the question for some people of why does God send some people to hell knowing when he created them that they would never receive Christ? Why did he create them to begin with? And some would answer because it simply pleased him to do so. He simply chose to create people knowing they would go to hell. And all we can say is it was God's choice. But see, that answer doesn't go far enough back. That is not the starting point, God's choice. Now, I may never understand, and I don't pretend to understand, why God created people who he knew would never choose him, never receive Christ. But this I know. It was not some arbitrary choice. It was not a flip of the coin. There is nothing that God does that is independent of who he is. Everyone agrees that God is just, and he will always be just, and he can never be anything but just. That is the essential character of God. Not everyone agrees that God loves all just as essentially. He can never be anything other than just, and he can never be anything other than loving. He cannot choose to be unjust. He can't choose contrary to his nature. And he cannot choose to be unloving. Every person who will ever stand before God will have to affirm, God is just and God is love. And he was loving to me and he was just to me. There will be no exceptions. He cannot will contrary to his nature. He must be what he is and he is love. He cannot change. He must be what he is to all people at all time. He is the immutable God, theologians say. They like to use big words. He will never change. What he is, you can take it to the bank, will always be the case. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Because God is love. And he cannot be other than what he is. Voluntarism affirms that something is right simply because God willed it, rather than God willing it because it is right in accordance with his own unchangeable nature. According to voluntarism, something is right simply because God wills it. That is not true. God can will nothing contrary to his unchangeable, immutable 
nature. There's another error, comes with another big word, theologism, I can't even say it, and it is the error of making one truth about God supersede everything else. One attribute of God that becomes the pinnacle over every other attribute. We do that with the glory of God. And it is true that everything that God has done, He has done ultimately for His glory. But as with all of His attributes, the glory of God does not supersede any of His other attributes. They all coexist and must all be present for God to be God. The deist is a person who believes that God created this world, made it like a clock to run on its own, and just set it free, and that it does not need intervention. The world does not need intervention, according to the deist, because God made it in such a way that it can function independent of God's ongoing, sustaining care. And the deist would say, that is a world that brings more glory to God than a world that requires his constant intervention. It's hard to argue with that. Right? Which is a world that brings more glory to God? A world that needs God's constant intervention or a world that doesn't need his intervention? And the deist goes, if, if everything's about the glory of God, gotcha. God's glory is just one aspect of his being. And everything has to be considered in harmony, in unison. And the love of God does not trump his justice. And the justice and holiness of God does not trump his love. I don't understand how they can all coexist. But that's because I'm finite. And God is infinite. Hebrews 11.6 says, The one who comes, it says, whatever is not of faith is sin. I'm sorry, it says, it is impossible to please God apart from faith. And the one who comes to God must believe that he is love. Is that what it says? The one who comes to God must believe that he is holy. Is that what it says? The one who comes to God must believe, it just says must, the one who comes to God must believe he is And he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is. That says everything. He is the I am. And there is not one attribute of God that we are to focus on to the exclusion of the others. God is light. God is love. Amen. It is a true statement. Love is unconditional. Meaning, God loves because of who he is, and not because of a response that he may or may not get from us. If I choose not to respond to God, God loves me. If I respond to God, God loves me. It is unconditional. He gave his son to his enemies. It's unconditional love. It will, he can never stop loving His love is predicated only upon himself. It is not predicated upon my performance. Praise God. So it is a true statement. The love of God is unconditional. 
It is also a true statement. Acceptance by God is conditional. Love, being loved by God is unconditional. The only requirement to being loved by God is that you exist. And if you exist, God loves you. But to be accepted by God is conditional. As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This is the quandary that Paul faces in the book of Romans, where he spends three chapters establishing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, then how can they be made righteous? And as many theologians have tried to summarize it, and one has said, how can a, the quandary is, how can a righteous God righteously make righteous the unrighteous and remain righteous? I like that. How can a righteous God righteously make righteous the unrighteous and remain righteous? See, he can't just love us into heaven. That is an impossibility. The righteousness of God must be satisfied. The justice of God must be satisfied. So how can a righteous, holy, just God make the unrighteous righteous and remain righteous? There is a condition. The only way to have our unrighteousness taken away is not by the love of God. But it is have the justice and righteousness of God satisfied. And that is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do we believe this? God loves all and loves all unconditionally. But he is a righteous and holy God. And the only way to have a right standing before a righteous God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, not by the love of God. Acceptance is conditioned upon faith in Jesus Christ and only faith in Christ. Because only Christ's blood is sufficient to pay for my sin. Nothing I could ever do could begin to pay for my sin. Is it a true statement, love makes no demands? I would say it's true and it's false. It is true, love loves regardless of the response. It is unconditional. But it is false In that every imperative of Scripture, every command of Scripture in the Bible is given in love. So again, you can't separate the love of God from anything else about God. And when God says you must be holy as God himself is holy, that is said in love. When when God says put aside lying, and speak the truth to one another, that is said in love. There are hundreds of imperatives in the New Testament. Every one of them is expressing an expectation. You might say a demand, because they are not suggestions. They are imperatives. They are commands. 
And every one of them is expressed in love. So if one of my grandkids is about to dart across the traffic, I am going to lovingly make a demand. Stop! And I'm demanding it. It's not a suggestion. Stop! And it is set in love. Because I don't want to see them hit by a car when they run across the street. So it is not entirely true that love makes no demands. Love is going to be loved, and it's not going to stop whether we respond or not. But love comes with demands, expectations. Love, a second statement similar to it is not quite as harsh maybe, love expects nothing. It is true, love doesn't love under the condition of being reciprocated. Love me or not, I'm going to love you, would be what God would say. But it is also a false statement. Because love is hopeful. Love wants the best. Love desires response. I don't know any kind of love that doesn't desire response. Do you? There's an implicit expectation in love that there's going to be a a reciprocity. There's going to be a response to the love. It's, It's inherent to love that you want your love to be received and responded to. When I love a newborn baby, it is true I expect nothing from that baby. Because the baby can do nothing. But when the child is now five, as Weston is five, I have some expectations for Weston that I didn't have for him when he was five days old. Coming over to church this morning, and he's in the car with us, and, and another passenger's in the car, and a couple times Weston talked over the other person. And I said, Weston, when someone else is speaking, it's not polite to interrupt them. Now, I love him. I didn't tell him that when he was five days old. Grandson, quit making noise. Other people are talking right now. But as he grows and matures, my expectations for him increase. And now, in love, I expect for him to learn not to interrupt others. It's no less love because I have expectations. When I go on a trip and leave my wife behind, what would it be like if I said to her, just want you to know, sweetheart, I love you. And now that I'm leaving, I expect nothing from you. I don't expect you to be faithful. I don't expect you to be here when I come home. I just want you to know I love you and I expect nothing from you. So if you're unfaithful or you choose to leave while I'm gone, it won't disappoint me in the least because I expect nothing from you. And then we go, that's not love. If you're, what about your teenage kid? And you say to that teenage kid who's trying to figure out you know, right and wrong and what's important in life and what isn't important in life, and he's looking to you as the parent for some guidance, and you just put your arm around 
that teenager and say, son, daughter, I just want you to know, I love you. And I expect nothing from you. (laughs) Well, I'm sure to measure up to that. See, that's not love. So it is true in a limited sense that love expects nothing. That love demands nothing. But you can make error out of truth. God has expectations for us. How do I get that from what he's saying? Because he says here, by this the love of God is manifest in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that, this is the expectation, we might live through him. God didn't just send his son so, that we, so we could see that God loves us. There was an expectation that came with God sending his son. Live! Live! You see? He didn't just send his son so that I would know that God is love. Thank you, God. Now I know your love. And have a good day. My life is blessed. God says, I didn't send my son just to satisfy you emotionally with the knowledge that I love you. I sent my son so that you would live. Now live! And with that is an expectation. Receive my son. There is a condition to living. Receive Christ. And there even comes with a demand. If you don't receive my son, who is the demonstration of my love for you, then you cannot have life and you are going to go to hell. Says God, who is love. And who is also just and righteous in all that he does. The act of love was meant to result in life. And we cannot know the love of God, and we cannot love as God loves until we are alive in Christ. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's going to come back to this later in the paragraph and say, he loved us first. We don't, didn't love him first, he loved us first. And this is love, that God sent his son even when we didn't love him. Now, what he's getting at is not so much, yes, it's important that God loved us first, but what he's getting at is the sacrificial nature of his love, the selflessness of his love, the generosity of his love, the redemptive nature of his love, and the extremeness of his love. It was unto death. The love of God is incomprehensible. Who would give their perfect, righteous, holy son for their enemy? Many of whom will never even appreciate what he's done. But that's what God has done. It truly takes the Spirit of God to even begin to comprehend the love of God. 
And God does, I believe, he, he awakens the soul in the knowledge that God loves me. But not every awakened soul responds to God in faith. I've shared my testimony, and the students have all for sure heard it. As a 10-year-old boy sitting in an Easter Sunday sermon, and the pastor, I don't think he ever mentioned the love of God. I don't think he ever mentioned the resurrection of Jesus that Sunday. He did talk about the beating that Christ took and the extreme nature of the crucifixion. Well, my heart was ready, and God spoke to me. And I went home that night, and after we'd all been put to bed, I couldn't escape the first time real heart knowledge that God loves me. See, the Spirit of God did that. Spirit of God awakened me, not just that mom and dad love me, and not that I've, I've heard it before. <coughs> it wasn't the first time I'd heard God loves me. As I said, I don't even think the pastor said it. My parents have been telling me God loved me. My parents have been telling me they loved me. But for the first time, the Spirit of God had awakened my soul. God loves me. But now, I'm not saved. What am I going to do with what the Spirit of God has awakened in me? And I said, Jesus, love me. I want you to love me. And I received Christ. And now I continue to grow in the knowledge of God's love. And I believe I have a better understanding and more intimate acquaintance with the love of God today than I did that night when I was 10 years old. Because my soul, my spirit is alive now in Christ. And being alive in Christ, I can better understand I can be in relationship with him and have not just head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of the love of God. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As I've said, chapter 2, verse 2, not for ours only, but for the whole world. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. But remember, love is from God. And John certainly hasn't forgotten that. So don't drop down in this paragraph in verse 11. We ought to love one another as God has loved us. And even begin to think that you can just do this on your own. God is love. And love is from God. And so when John tells us to love one another as God has loved us, he is orienting us back to God. No one has beheld God at any time. This is where he's getting to the crux of his argument. No one has ever seen God the Father. Many saw Jesus, God in the flesh. But no one ever saw God the Father. If we love one another, God, the unseen God that no one has ever seen, abides in us. 
And his love is perfected in us. He doesn't say you're saved if you love. He says you are walking in an abiding relationship with Christ if you are loving each other. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. What's he getting at? I think simply what he's saying is the invisible God has sent the invisible Holy Spirit to live within the heart of every person who has received Christ. And the invisible God and his invisible spirit are made visible as we love one another, as he has loved us. And people may never see God, but they can know God as they see how we love one another. He's not, again, this is not excluding how we love the world. He's not talking about that here. It's how we love one another. And just a word about that. I've known Jesus. I've walked with Jesus now for 10 years old. Do the math here. I went to public school, so it takes me a while. 52 years. That's unbelievable. And if you want to know what perfect love is, well, you should have been married to me. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Patsy's over there sticking her fingers down. <laughs> no. I am not the picture of perfect love. None of us are individually. And I would hope and I would pray and trust that I love better today than I did 10 years ago. I'm not so sure sometimes. I feel that I'm more narcissistic than I've ever been. And I'm also told that that's part of growing in likeness to Jesus as you see your sin more clearly. I don't know what to think. But I believe what John is saying here is perfect love is never going to be expressed in one individual. If you want to know the fullness of love, Don't look for me to give it to you. Don't look for your husband or your wife to give it to you. I don't think God ever intended that the fullness of love and all that it is is going to be absolutely, perfectly expressed in one individual other than Jesus because he is God and God is love. This is what I do know and this is where these, this last month and a half have really been impressing this upon me. There's not a person in this church that I question your love for me and my family. And I appreciate that deeply. But I also know that we're all different. And some of you express your love differently than others do. And it is no less love. I can think of one man in this church. Man, he's a hugger. And he's verbal. He even kissed me on the cheek last Sunday. And I'm thinking, it's been a long time since I've had a man kiss me (laughs) on the cheek. 
and I appreciated it. He is a very physical, affirming guy in his love. And it's needed. And I know other people in this church that would die before they would do something like that. I would be one of them. (laughs) But you'd take the shirt off your back. You'd drop everything you're doing and come and meet any practical need that you could see. You express love differently. And so that person that would just say, give me something to do, is never going to be the person who's going to come and kiss you on the cheek. But are they not loving you? It's been said that we each have our love language. I have no idea what that means or what mine is. Larry Gallo once said publicly in the church here that my love language is money. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. Larry, I really, really appreciate that. Um, but if my love language is service, and you are a hugger, I'd be tempted to walk away and say, I'm not being loved by that person. Or if my love language is words, and physical expressions. And you're looking for a way to serve me, and you can't think of a way to serve me. Something practical to do for me. And it just isn't there. I could walk away and say, I'm not being loved. What I'm getting at is, if you want the closest we can come to being loved perfectly, is to be loved within the body of Christ. Because we, we all have different love languages. And it's within the context of the body, and it is so wrong to point to individual members in the body and say they are not loving because I'm not being loved the way that I'm hoping to be loved. But if I look in the context of the body of Christ, I go, man alive, I am being loved. And I thank God for his body. That God knows how to love me. I don't even know how I need to be loved. But God knows how I need to be loved. And he puts us in the body of Christ so that we can be loved perfectly by God because love is from God. And God never intended that one person become God in our life. One person will never be the perfect lover. But God, who is the perfect lover, loves us perfectly within the body of Christ. That's what I'm coming to understand. I love this body. And I deeply appreciate the love that has been shown to me and my family. And I cannot imagine living the Christian life in isolation from the body of Christ the deprivation is unimaginable. My wife, my kids are not a substitute for the body of Christ. The fullness of love that God wants me to experience, I am not going to experience in isolation. He's put us in a body and it is for our good so we could be loved 
as close to perfectly as can exist on this earth. A good preacher knows when to stop. I'll just wrap it up and say in these 17 17 verses, and we didn't get through all 17 of them, so I'm going to revisit this next week. There are five key statements here. Number one, God is love, and love is from God. Number two, God has loved us in the giving of his son. Number three, no one has beheld God at any time. Number four, we have beheld the son who is the perfect demonstration and personification of God's love. And number five, as Christ is, as God is, this is in verse 17, so also are we in the world. Meaning, God is love, love is from God, he has loved us perfectly in Christ, no one has ever seen God, but as God is, we are in the world meaning we are the visible demonstration of the love of God in this world. We, the church. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you again for these things, for being a God who is not just one thing, love, because then love would be God, and it is not. You are holy, you are righteous, You are just. We could go on all day with naming your attributes. But I thank you, God, that you would come to you in faith, believing that you are. And I thank you for the body of Christ that you place us in when we receive your Son, that we might continue to know the love of God through your body and that we collectively would be the visual demonstration to this world of the love that you have for us and have for the world. Your ways are good, and we thank you, God, for being light and being love. In Jesus' name, amen.